So Jolene, tell us what's the craziest thing you've ever eaten on a mission trip? Well, Tori, when I think about crazy things I've eaten on a mission trip, I can think of some exotic things that I ate, especially in South Africa. But I want to share what was the most um, significant eating experience I had on a missions trip, and that was growing up as a missionary kid in Mexico. Um, we always had animals around our house because my dad had been a farmer before becoming a missionary. So we always had animals. So once we had these little chicks um, that we had as pets, but as they got bigger, we couldn't keep them in our house where we were at. So we gave them to a family in a church that my dad worked with. Well, months later, this lovely family invited us over for dinner. And you know where the story is oh, going. Yeah. <laughs> but we were well-trained missionary kids. You eat whatever's put in front of you. You smile. You thank people. Well, so we're sitting there eating chicken mole, which is a very typical Mexican dish, just loving it, enjoying it. And all of a sudden, halfway through the meal, they explained that it had come time for our lovely pets to meet their demise and become part of, you know, the menu for that week. And all of us kids, I mean, we were like six, eight, 10, 12. I mean, our eyes got huge and we looked at the plate in front of us. We, oh, we have to finish this. <laughs> and so we all ate lumpy and mumpy and we got into the car and my little brother just starts bawling. He's like, I just did lumpy. <laughs> so that's my most significant eating experience. I mean, it doesn't compare to some of the crazy exotic things that I've eaten. They were nothing compared to eating poor lumpy and mumpy. So yeah. <laughs> wow. What a story. Poor lumpy and mumpy. Welcome to the Better Mission Trips podcast from Standards of Excellence and Short-Term Mission. I'm your host, Tori Ruark, and we believe that mission trips can and should be better. In fact, statistics suggest that maybe as many as 80% of short-term missionaries are going out under-trained and under-prepared. They're going out with the right heart, but they're not going out in the right way. In this podcast, we're going to discover together how to combine the right heart with the right way for God's glory. We're here today with Dr. Jolene Erlocker from Leading Tomorrow to talk about preparing the next generation for uh, service and missions. And so today actually is going to be a part one of a two-part conversation with Jolene around this idea. Today we're going to focus in on how we as uh, older generations of leaders can work across generational gaps uh, to journey together with those from Gen Z as they realize God's call into missions. So uh, make sure that you watch after this episode for uh, the next part of our conversation, which will really focus in on preparing Gen Z short-term missionaries kind of within that short-term mission process. So Let's get started. Uh, Jolene, if you could introduce yourself and just tell us a little bit about who you are and about leading tomorrow. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, I grew up as a missionary kid and I like to joke that, you know, I started by studying my family because I have boomer parents. I have, there's six siblings in my family. I'm the oldest. There's three of us that were Gen Xers and three millennials. So, you know, I kind of got to see some of those dynamics early on in my life, but I went and worked on staff at a church for three years and then um, at a university, a Christian university. And I oversaw all the short-term missions trips while I was there at the university, which is when I first discovered SOE and became a member um, while I was there at the university. But while I was there working with students who were studying to go into ministry or to go into nonprofit work or go into the business world and do marketplace ministry um, or missions, I began to see this disconnect between kind of the, the organizations, the leaders where they were serving and kind of what their expectations were. And I was seeing a lot of our young people just really struggle as they were engaging in ministry context. So that's really what propelled me into this generational research about uh, 15 years ago. And ever since then, I've just been completely fascinated with understanding how these generational trends are impacting uh, ministry context and what we need to do to effectively engage the next generation. So, um, so that's what I've been doing for about the last eight years is consulting and training and researching generational trends. Excellent. And so if, um, if people here who watch this or participate, uh, they enjoy this and they want to know more where else can they find you we'll get that in the beginning so we don't be yeah there you go <laughs> where can they get more of your information and resources where, where can they look you up yep so my website is leadingtomorrow.org and you'll find links to my podcast and blog and books and all of that good stuff there um so yeah leadingtomorrow.org is the best place to start very good yeah and kathy's put that in the chat box for for you you don't have to write that down or remember it. You can see it's right there, leadingtomorrow.org. And we do encourage you to, to find her there uh, if you are looking for more information. So um, uh, I just want to say I'm really excited today. I'm sure a lot of the folks who are on this webinar not only probably work with younger generations, but maybe their parents. I have you know, an almost 17-year-old who's getting ready to join the workforce in a more meaningful way. And some of those things you said about what you observed in that um, that tension between older and younger generations, I'm living out and in different fronts, and I'm sure a lot of us are. So, let's start really basic uh, and assume that kind of that we don't know much about who these generations are. I love the meme one time that I saw. It said, "A millennial is anybody who is younger than you and you don't like." But, <laughs> I know that's not like the technical definition. Yeah. So tell us uh, briefly, you know, when we think about these younger generations and actually millennials are starting to grow up, but mm -hmm. what are those generations? Kind of what ages are they? And uh, what can you tell us about that? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I just want to comment quickly on your point that a lot of the trends we'll talk about today about preparing next geners for, you know, short-term missions does apply. They do, these same principles apply in our everyday life, as well as I see many of you are working in local churches. A lot of it relates to local church. So if you have a question related to ministry in the local church or, or something of that nature, um, feel free to put that in the chat box too, because a lot of these things will apply to short-term missions as well. So, um, so as we think about the next generations, you're right, Tori, millennials are mid approaching middle age. I like to tease them. <laughs> They're not the young ones anymore. And, um, you know, a lot of times now millennials are 
supervising Generation Z. So they're getting to feel some of the, you know, tension when you're trying to relate to a younger generation, um, as well as the opportunities. So I love millennials and Generation Z. There's just amazing characteristics about uh, each of them. But um, the kind of the dates that I go by, there's a little bit of, you know, difference in what dates people use exactly. Um, and what I find is on occasion, you're going to have a 26 year old who actually thinks like an old soul. They are an old soul. Their personality makes them think like a boomer, you know, and you have a boomer on occasion who thinks like a Gen Zer. So there are things like personality and perspective worldview experiences that play into this. So um, as we talk today, like I just like to say that up front because these are generalizations um, and we really do have to engage individuals, but um, really the generational cohorts, as I look at them, I kind of use the birth years 1980 to 1995 to define millennials. So, um, you know, millennials are, like I said, the oldest are approaching, uh, well, they're 40 this year. So um, they're, uh, you know, roughly 26 to, to 40. And then Gen Z is really, I, I like right now, it's pretty much all of our students from, you know, elementary school through graduate school. So really everybody 25 and younger would be Gen Z. I use the birth years 1996 uh, to 2010. There are some differences between older millennials and younger millennials as well, just because of the internet and when the internet came about. So you do see some of those differences, um, but really we're kind of looking at young adults down to elementary schools, our Gen Zers that we're gonna be really focusing on today. Excellent, excellent. So um, tell us a little bit um, about what are some of the values? And, and I think uh, probably today we're going to focus more in on the Gen Z um, because, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of us, I'm very close to a millennial. I, I was 79. So don't want me. Yes, you're a cusper. <laughs> I just gave away my age. No, don't do that. To me. Okay. So um, tell us a little, so we're going to, I think, focus today on uh, the next, the Gen Z. So, uh, can you tell us just a little bit about kind of what are their values? What are they motivated by? What what are the commonalities? What makes them Gen Z? Yeah. Well, I think one thing that can be helpful is to just understand briefly some of the differences between millennials and Gen Zers, because often when we think people younger, we've, we've been conditioned to think millennials, and it can be easy to just kind of wrap Gen Z into that. Gen Z is proving to be a pretty different uh, generational cohort. So, um, you know, to just lay out a couple of the basic differences, uh, millennials grew up in a time that was relatively stable. Um, the economy was relatively stable. Uh, our, our, we were not at war constantly. It was pre, you know, 9-11, uh, you know, so it was, there was a sense of stability. So millennials tended to have a lot of optimism. They also grew up in the period of helicopter parenting. So they're used to adults taking care of them. So there was a lot of optimism, a lot of uh, sense of collaboration, teamwork, wanting to be a part of something meaningful, have a purpose in their lives. And, you know, this is why we see a lot of millennials who took out tens of thousands of dollars in student loan debt and traveled the world and had experiences and, you know, did all these things because it was very optimistic. The world felt very stable. Um, you know, it, it felt like we're going to get a good job and, you know, that's going to, and then 9-11 happened and that did impact them. But Gen Z has really grown up in a very different context, one in which there is a lot of uncertainty, which I mean, 2020 has just added <laughs> to this dynamic that Gen Z was already experiencing. I mean, we are living through a period effect that we will talk about in generational studies for years to come right now. But um, I mean, things like they grew up after, you know, 9-11, um, 
after 9-11, they grew up, with, I mean, the oldest were six. So most Gen Zers don't remember 9-11. They just have known all of the, you know, homeland security and all those things that came with 9-11 have been a part of their life. Then there was the recession. Our country has basically been at, involved in some sort of conflict or war since you know, they were very, very young or not even born yet. Um, there's been economic instability. And now, of course, this year, you know, more uncertainty on multiple levels. So this is a generation that is much more skeptical, much more cautious, much more pragmatic and practical, much more independent. I can do it myself, leave me alone. And they're very individualistic. So where we saw millennials being more collective, more group oriented, more community oriented, team oriented, we're seeing Gen Z be more skeptical, more pragmatic and more, I got to watch out for number one and more individualistic in that sense, just because of the uncertainty that they've um, kind of navigated in the world today. Yeah, interesting. Um, let me see if this question makes sense. You can tell me if it does or not, but how do Gen Zers interact with the world that maybe is similar to how the rest of us would, whether we're millennials or older and or how is it different? And is that, is that a, a question that makes sense? That's a great question. Yeah, let me see if I answered it all. <laughs> makes sense. But one of the things I think we're seeing that's different with Gen Z is how they identify what you know some marketers are calling their tribe, the group that they belong to. Uh, whereas in the past, we tended to identify with people right around us, our classmates at school, our parents, our family, our communities, our church, right? Um, people in our, in our context. With technology, social media, all these things, video games, TikTok, you know, all these things, what we're finding is Gen Z can find their tribe, the people that they connect with, identify with, spend their time with all over the world and not necessarily in their immediate context, which can create some struggles when you're trying to engage them you know, in whether it's a short-term missions team from your church or in a discipleship group or whatever it might be, because often they're engaging in the world via technology, which makes it global, and they can find the people, you know, that they think like or identify with um, versus needing to relate to the people right around them. I think the other thing that's changed is with millennials, we saw um, just this desire for mentoring, this desire to be invested in. And so they were willing to engage with people around them who were willing to listen to them, invest in them, show that they cared. Gen Z doesn't really feel like they need anybody else, which is adding to the sense of individualization because they can go to Google or they can find an expert somewhere online uh, to learn from and connect with. So they don't have that same sense of, I need to connect with the people right here. You know, as I, I think I've shared in the past, you know, one teenage boy that his dad wanted him to help him fix something in the house that was broken. So you know how to do it, son, right? And the son's like, I'll just YouTube it, dad, you know, <laughs> when I need to learn it. So that sense of I need to learn from the people around me is not the same, which is impacting how they're then relating to teachers, pastors, parents, et cetera, around them. Does that answer that question? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's fantastic. And it's, it's a good um, time. And I'm just making a note here to, to follow up with this too. Um, so it's a good time to kind of remind people we're talking in the general, not necessarily in just the short-term mission sense, because, um, well, we are holistic people. We want to speak in the general, not just in one, but as you're listening, you can take it and you can put it into context and even ask, don't ask those questions in the chat box that, that you come up mm -hmm. to as you try to think in 
apply it into that short-term setting. So we'll, we'll talk general and then we'll um, maybe get more specific into the short-term phase too. So, um, so thinking about that, kind of how they interact with the world, um, how they find people like them. Um, gosh, I'll, I'll just tell a funny story. Yesterday, my kids, you know, they range from second grade all the way up to junior and high school. And my fourth grader told, uh, yeah, fourth grader told me that so, said something about in music class, the teacher, virtual music class, mm -hmm. of course, he's not been to school a day with any of these kids this year, said something about, uh, you know, they're tapping their shoulders, tap their neck. And then as soon as he said, it was funny, as soon as we did that, everybody started typing in the chat box, which right there is funny. Fourth grader typing in the chat box. And they, I forget what they did, but it was some saying, and I was going to try to remember it because I knew this. And my ninth grader had to explain to me why everybody was typing this in <laughs> some TikTok or some, I don't know, whatever. <laughs> but it reminded me of, you know, what you said there about, yeah. um, I mean, my son has not been in a classroom a day with those kids. Right. They have the shared culture. Yeah. They understand. They all knew immediately what this meant and all that yeah. stuff. So, Think about some of those things, how we learn, our desire to learn from others, how we interact with the world. Um, what does that, what are the implications of that as far as their um, involvement in short-term missions, or maybe it's even kind of their ex expectation of involvement in short-term missions? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think one thing that we're finding is this ability to find information, to find people, to find opportunities, to learn, be self-learners, um, to, to engage in a culture that can be invisible to the people who are physically with you, right? I mean, like your son having to explain to you what your son was probably, or, or your, I don't know if it was your son or your daughter, your fourth grader doing right there next to you. There's a culture that exists, you know, that's sometimes even invisible. And um, I think that, you know, to recognize, oh, I just lost my train of thought where I was going with that. But as, as they're, um, we see these different cultures, are these different ways that they're connecting that are not necessarily here right in front of us, we have to keep that in mind. So often as we're engaging young people, we're just interacting with them in the space that's right in front of us. But to just bear it in mind, there is this cross-cultural element to just engaging them. And so, I mean, one thing that's important, you know, I'll talk about this in the context of short-term missions, but it's really, I'll, critical in every type of leadership is this um, idea that authority and respect now comes out of relationship, not out of position or title. Um, because young people can access information, they can find things that they want to do. Um, they No longer do they feel like they need adults in the same way, but they do still need people who are going to support them, encourage them, give them what uh, you know a screen cannot give them. But their expectation coming into a short-term team then is going to be that I can participate actively from the beginning because their entire life they're participating. They're looking for things, they're finding things, they're communicating. So to sit quietly and listen to us, tell them what they need to know um, or give them directions or tell them what the plan is, that is a foreign idea to them. Even in the classroom now, I mean, as and especially now in this virtual context where so many students are learning, they are engaging continually. I mean, they are in the chat box chatting, right? So they are used to participating, engaging, uploading their ideas. So I often talk about the difference between an uploading generation and a downloading generation. This is a generation that's gonna come into an experience, a team experience, expecting to be able to upload their ideas, their comments, their perspectives, 
into the planning, into the learning uh, from the very beginning. So to keep that in mind, whereas traditionally we've kind of been, a, we've had downloading generations where they would come into the meeting and they want you to tell them, tell us what you know we're gonna do, tell us how we're gonna do things. And they're used to just following those directions and listening. So, and if they're not participating, here's the thing. Sometimes they are happy to let you do all the work. They're happy to just sit there and be texting on the side or zoning out thinking about their video game. If they're not participating, they're not engaged. So if you have young people in your, your team or your meeting and they're not participating, then that becomes an issue. We need to find ways to make sure that they're participating. So those two things I would say, one is, recognizing that respect is going to be earned through relationship, which means we want to be engaging them individually um, right where they are. And as much as possible, seeking to understand this world that might be invisible to us, you know, um, asking questions that show that you're interested, you know, what is your favorite, you know, who do you follow on TikTok and why, and why are they your favorite or whatever. Um, and then also just making sure that they're participating, giving their input, their ideas, and that you're soliciting those things. You're asking for their input is really critical. Good. So I, 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 that brings up a question. Um, when, when we think about this idea that um, engagement with them really, I mean, uh, comes from a relationship, not just from that you're there, you're their pastor yeah. or you're their youth yeah. pastor or you're their parent. Uh, also the idea of being uploading, of being an active participant, what uh, does that have implications for how we try to draw them into involvement in missions and, and even involvement in um, short-term missions? And, and so what are those implications? Absolutely. I think even the most critical element of how we're going to engage them in short-term missions is that individualization I referenced earlier. We're finding that Gen Z is the most individualistic generation to come along in a very individualistic society. So they're able to individualize everything and they're used to everything being individualized to them. This is being affirmed through technology and how we do education. When you go into Starbucks and order your drink, right? You can individualize everything. So what can be really, really critical if you're going to promote and you want to engage Gen Z in short-term missions, Yes, you need to have, you know, promotions on social media, you need to have, you know, something, a website where they can go to and learn about it, or whatever the case might be, you know, something in your bulletin. But more importantly, is going to be if you approach that young person individually, and say, hey, Tommy, I've been watching you for the last six months. Uh, this is what I appreciate about you. You know, this is what I see in you. I believe God might be challenging you to go on this trip because I believe in you. <laughs> you know, this individualization, why you would invite that per him individually to this experience and identifying the individual reasons why you would want to do that. Um, and then they are gonna be much, much, much more likely to respond. It is very unlikely you're gonna get them to respond to an announcement unless mom or dad or somebody makes them do it. You right. know, it's gonna be you targeting them as an individual for an individual reason. And then as we're engaging them in short-term missions, what we're finding is, here, here's what I love about short-term missions, is it creates the context for us to do a lot of things around mentoring and discipleship with Gen Z that are really hard to do in any other context. Because Gen Z, they don't feel like they need a mentor. 
or a coach because they can look things up right on, on YouTube. They often don't feel like they need teachers, right? <laughs> so I can Google it. But in a short-term missions context, this is an environment where they're not going to be able to Google everything. There's not going to be a YouTube video for everything. They're going to be outside their comfort zone. And you have them they're, as a ca captive audience in a situation where they're having to do something with you together, whether even in the preparation stage and the debriefing stage, as well as the on-field stage. And they're experiencing something, which is the best way that they learn, you know, Tim Elmore talks about epic, that they're epic learners, experiential, participatory, image rich and connected. The way that they learn best is if they're experiencing something, which short-term missions provides, they're participating, like I said, that uploading. And if we're creating spaces like the standards, um, you know, want us to like for debriefing and all of that, there's a place for them to be uploading. Image rich and connected. I mean, they're living the experience, you know, and then they're connecting with other people. There's a team, you, a, a leader is there. So this is a context where we meet all of those qualifications for the best learning environment. And we have an opportunity to build a relationship with them that's going to allow them to learn and grow. The other thing is, is that young people today, they feel like they're competing in a global marketplace because they are watching five-year-olds on YouTube or TikTok who can do everything better than they can, right? Dance, play an instrument, sing, cook, whatever. There's a five-year-old somewhere in the world who can do it better than you. And so as a result, I mean, they feel incredible in anxiety. I mean, I'm mentoring an 18-year-old right now who is a junior in college with a double major, making all A's. And she feels like she's behind. She's dealing with incredible anxiety and stress right now. She's like, I'm behind, I'm behind. I'm like, you are a junior in college with a double major straight A's as an 18 year old. But I'm like, why, why do you feel like you're behind? Behind who? Mm -hmm. But literally they're comparing themselves to everyone in the world. So when we can pull them into a context where we can say, here's what I see God has put in you. Here's what I see that your gifts are, your talents that God wants to use for his kingdom and that he wants to develop, that he is developing it is so affirming to them that in an individual sense, God has uniquely made them and gifted them. And this is one of the contexts where we can call that out of them and set them up for serving God beyond this context because it's unique and it's not YouTube. It's not TikTok. It's a person talking to them. So it's a really powerful opportunity, I think. Yeah. Excellent. So I want to, um, that that's such good stuff. And I, I'm just, I don't know, I, probably a lot of you are, are this way. I, I, every time you, I, I think about you, you say something, I can see it in my interaction with my mm -hmm. kids or interactions with youth. Uh, so it's excellent. Um, thinking for a second about this idea of being an uploading generation and learners and, and they can really learn everything everywhere. Um, you know, to a certain extent, we've seen a shift in short-term missions from this idea of we're going to go accomplish something, we're going to go do something, mm -hmm. to um, a more, I think, um, accurate form of partnership. Uh, there's still some doing, but hopefully we're doing together when I did before. Um, but I think we're also seeing that um, one of the big um, um, outcomes or advantages or, or possibilities with short-term missions is the relationship building with, uh, with people who are different than you, people pouring into you who are different from you and, um, and vice versa. So thinking about that, um, uploading, meaning they participate, they, they're maybe more eager to learn than maybe past generations. Uh, sometimes I, 
well, I was telling a, a guy, a neighbor who's in his probably sixties, what I do. And, and he's not a believer, but his, when I talked about the idea of, you know, after so many years of mistakes and alienating people because we didn't understand their culture, it, you know, his comment was, well, I guess I never really worry about whether people care if I'm offended or not, you know, um, yeah. I just, so I'm rambling a little bit here, but the, the question is, does that make a difference on how we promote? Is it, you know, a lot of us, we are wanting to promote more that this is um, a, 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 um, more than a trip. It's an experience. It's going to something that's going to impact the rest of your life. Uh, um, there's something bigger going on than just going and doing something for two weeks. Does all those things said, is it, how can we then promote, not just promote a trip, but promote involvement in missions maybe in a way that really does connect more with them other than like you said in personally inviting them in yeah. is there a way that um to give context for this involvement yeah absolutely i mean i think this is one of the things i'm i'm working on my next book right now which is on mobilizing gen z for missions and one of the ideas that i'm playing around with i'm, I'm not sure how how i can present it um in a way that's going to be you know, effective, but one of the things that the way I think about it is missions as education, which I know is going to, you know, is a problematic way of forming it, formatting it. But I think missions as education for some, you know, for young people, they, the highest moral value for Generation Z is tolerance. And this is a, a good thing and a bad thing all at once, because tolerance, um, you know, used to be defined as just understanding and respecting other people and, you know, choosing to agree to disagree if we didn't agree, you know, civilly disagreeing. Um, but today tolerance requires affirmation and acceptance of every point of view as equal. It's part of being in a pluralistic society where we accept all truths as equal and valid, even if they're contradictory, which is you know, causing some angst for young people as they're trying to establish their worldview. So this is problematic in that sense, but what it has done is it has allowed this generation, to your point, Tori, they're very predisposed to want to learn or to understand that they need to learn, that there's other perspectives out there that they can grow from learning from those perspectives. And I do think that that is one of the things we can capture. Um, just saying, you know, here's an opportunity for you to learn about people who are different, you know, to ex expand your understanding of diversity, you know, globally. And those things are very, very important to this generation. Um, and so I think if we can tap some of those things that are core values for them of learning, diversity is a huge one, understanding other people, um, you know, gain exposed to new ideas, which is what, I mean, missions does, it, it does all those things for us. So I think there is benefit in that. I think the other thing that can be really powerful, um, you know, in talking to host, I mean, Kathy, you and Kathy and I have been, you know, in some of these conversations, but when you talk to host receivers, you know, often we're seeing that the church in other parts of the world is more mature in some ways sometimes, even than some of, you know, the, some of the young people that might be going from America, just because of biblical illiteracy in our country right now. And we truly, Gen Z is the first post-Christian generation that we are mobilizing. So they just are having to deal with a lot of conflicting worldviews. And so often they're going into a place where the Christians actually have 
a, a more stable sense of um, the Bible or theology and whatnot. So even predisposing our young people as we're sending them to, this is an opportunity for you to learn what is meaningful about their faith. How do they practice their faith? You know, I want you to learn something about, we're going to, maybe this could even be a debriefing question. What have you learned as far as a spiritual discipline, you know, or a way to engage God in your own life from this context that you're in? Those kinds of things, you know, like, Framing it as an opportunity to learn or to grow spiritually um, can be another way I think that we can engage Gen Z. And if we start to develop that anticipation or expectation before they go, I think um, then they're equipped to be able to look for those things. So, yeah. Yeah. So let me just say, uh, here's a freebie. If for those of you who are uh, watching this or participating, if you're not building into your mission trips, um, the ability for your host and those hosting you to be speaking into the lives of your participants, you're really missing out. That Just doing that alone is probably one of the best ways that you can build a true partnership and that you can affirm the value and, and dignify the people you're working with and serving. So um, that's good. So, okay, um, this is, uh, hopefully we're not going down a rabbit trail people don't find interesting, but I, Kathy put something in here. Um, thinking about the fact that um, Gen Z, they're growing up post-Christian, pluralistic. Um, I love the way you said, that talked about how tolerance has changed, the idea that um, all views are equally equal and valid, which I think um, when I see some studies and, and where I think that's maybe causing people to have um, difficulty with the idea of missions and evangelism. I'll get to that in a second, but just let's ask the simple question is, Gen Z, how do they determine right uh, or true? I mean, what is yeah. true and real? I mean, we just kind of had this top discussion around our table the other night about um, the spiritual world, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I kind of said, well, you know, there's lots of people who say certain things, but where do they get this from? You can't interview mm -hmm. a ghost or interview a spirit. <laughs> You know, so I go to the Bible and I just yeah. choose that. I don't care what other people say they experienced, yeah. what is here, you know. So what is it, this generation, how do they find truth, decide right and wrong and all those yeah. things? How they feel. <laughs> how they feel. <laughs> Roughly, you know, I will frequently ask that question in a context. So one of the um, major shifts, if you've read either of my books, I talk about how millennials and Gen Z are what we call post, I call postmodern natives. They really represent the generations that have grown up post the significant culture shift that our country is going through right now. Um, and so they truly do have a different worldview. And one of the shifts in that worldview is that traditionally coming out of things like the age of enlightenment, the age of reason, we relied on facts, logic, and reason to make decisions. That's even if it didn't feel good, we would go to the statistics, to what we could prove, to the evidence to make a decision. Clearly we're human, that didn't always happen, but that was the default approach. Since this new cultural shift has emerged, what we're seeing is a swing to the opposite extreme, which is, is what happens in a cultural shift. And people are making decisions based on emotion, story, and experience. And so often what young people are determining is right or wrong, even in Christian settings. I will, I will ask a group of students in a Christian or secular setting, just raise your hand if you make decisions based on you know, reason or facts or logic, something you can prove versus how you feel in the moment. I mean, I've taught ethics seminars 
where we talk about this and students say, like, what makes me decide if I'm going to stop if I hit a car in a parking lot, stop and leave my name, number and insurance information versus just drive away is how I'm feeling in the moment. Am I in a rush? Am I having a stressful day? Am I feeling kind and, you know, <laughs> altruistic? So, I mean, it is, but this is where, again, there's opportunity to challenge a little bit when we're in a context where we're working together um, and we are practicing life on life discipleship, which is what a short term missions trip. Young people are desperate for truth. And so here's the other thing that's really encouraging to me. So um, and David Kinnaman and Mark Matlock's book, um, Faith, uh, uh, Faith for Exiles, um, they talk about this resilient disciples, the 10 percent that we're seeing coming out of Gen Z church, Christian young people, there's this 10% of resilient disciples who are grounded in their biblical knowledge. Because what happens is once one of them has to choose, once a young person says, I'm going to believe the Bible for my truth, like I'm going to relate to it for truth, they're making a break with their entire generation and their culture. So they're having to make a significant stand to say, I'm going to break from what is the cultural norm around me, from what all my peers do and make the stand for biblical truth. And then they own it because they've had to make the sacrifice and they know they're going to probably experience some level of social persecution as a result of it. So to me, it's encouraging because we are seeing resiliency and commitment beyond anything that I would say Gen Z, Gen X had as a Gen Xer, um, once they commit, because they're having to make this stand. And I think one of the things we're finding is young people who remain in their faith from high school into adulthood, one of the number one predictive factors for them is if they have older adults who are Christians in their life, Bible-believing Christians who are investing and loving and supporting them. So I think even as we're mentoring young people on short-term missions teams, we're creating the context where they can ask these questions and process what their truth is, how they make moral decisions, and possibly grow towards a biblical worldview. Okay, so maybe you're starting to answer this question and maybe you already kind of did. So, um, if decisions, if truth, right and wrong are decided by how I feel, uh, now there are, and but yet we do see that sometimes Gen Zers will make that choice of I'm no longer going to function this way. I'm going to function this, mm -hmm. this other way, who I think we all would agree this is how, what our goal for them. Yeah. Um, and you started to hit on this. How do we, how do we do that? Um, yes. And it, I'm guessing based on what I've already heard you say, Short-term missions actually might be a really valuable tool towards that. Not that not that we do short-term missions for the person going, but that it is um, uh, a, a legitimate resource. Yeah. So, can you uh, tell us how do we teach Gen Z to think biblically, yeah. um, or how do we influence them to do that? Yeah. And what does that mean for short-term missions? Yeah, well, I mean, I would even say, Tori, that there might be a place in the future where we do do missions as discipleship with the host receivers recognizing their ministry is hosting this team of young people and creating a discipleship context for them. So I don't think that's out of the question as a model potentially in the future. So, which makes me excited because I feel like there are believers globally who would embrace that opportunity, you know, um, which is is kind of crazy. But you don't have I, to feel that way. I've talked to them who would absolutely embrace that. Mm. Which is so exciting to me. I think it's just, I think it just shows the partnership, how it's, it's the, all the body of Christ globally giving to the body of Christ globally. And the thing is, is that a short-term missions trip, 
gets our kids in the, the US or our young adults in the US out of their cultural context, away from their technology and creates a space where they can have that experience, that participation, that connectedness of the epic learner that allows them to see something in a new way. Here's the thing that's so encouraging to me. The Holy Spirit is in the business of giving us experiences and stories in our lives <laughs> of his working. And what I've realized with young people is often when we've done discipleship, we've come in with our program, our book, our outline, whatever. And we're like, we're going to walk you through this because this is what you need to learn to yeah. be discipled. Young people is a much more organic process today. And what I've realized, even with my own kids, God has challenged me in this. I need to be discerning what is the Holy Spirit doing in their lives today, this week? Where are they at? What can they hear? Where do I see the Holy Spirit already stirring a question or a thought or a doubt that I can encourage with a question or a thought or a verse or something? So I think it, it requires a lot more in you know discernment to disciple today versus planning. Not that there's no planning involved, but I think the discernment is so much more powerful to be discerning where's the Holy Spirit already stirring them and how do I engage that as he's leading and guiding them into all truth, which is his role, you know? And so I think we there's not a program necessarily. I mean, there's resources out there that can be helpful, but a lot of it is them having to feel it and experience it and it to become part of their story, you know? So, and I think short-term missions is again, a beautiful place for that to happen because we're with them, watching them, engaging with them, and we can see those moments and opportunities. Yeah. yeah. So let me just restate this back and make sure that, that um, we're thinking. So if we're trying to influence our Gen Z to grow and think biblically and, and make that the basis of right and wrong and, and uh, absolute truth, um, it doesn't happen within um, a curriculum, maybe like it used to inside of uh, uh, a Sunday school program, Awana, whatever it was for us that grew up with those things. Uh, it's not that it's not biblically, it's the Bible that transforms people, but it's happening within relationships, within experiences. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, God can still use the program. So I'm not saying throw out the programs completely, but I feel like we've relied on the program. So yes, I would affirm what you're saying. The relationship piece has to be foundational. And what we're finding is that really, it's hard to do that with more than three or four young people at a time. So, I mean, we like to measure success in numbers. We took 50 kids on a short-term trips this summer, you know, and they got all of these programs and did all these projects. Mm -hmm. But really the success with Gen Z is likely to occur more in, hey, we took a group of 10 and we had five adult mentors and five young people who we intentionally connected and they did life on life during that time. Um, because that's going to be, you know, probably leave a greater impact. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Good. And this is a, maybe a good chance to say that um, for those of you who are watching or, or with us today, uh, actually later this month, uh, Jolene and I are going to record more conversations around getting really specifically into the setting of short-term missions and uh, everything from screening these students to training them to those things. We're, we're looking at big picture here, how we can communicate with them, how we can connect them, how we can draw them in, uh, how we can get past our cultural differences um, and do those things. So uh, go back for just a second here. Again, go back to this idea. Um, we talked about kind of how to try to change this, but going back to this idea that, um, young people today 
for them, tolerance is this idea that all ideas are equal and equally valid. Not just that it's okay, you can have those beliefs and I'm not going to kill you, which was like up until denominations came about in the 1800s, right? 1700s. Um, So that's part of probably why we're seeing this. Anybody who's seen surveys at Barna or whoever, that um, I think a lot of our young people struggle with idea of evangelism. Yes. Probably because of that, right? Because uh, I would say the gospel is incredibly inclusive. There's nobody who can't be part of the gospel, but yet in their minds, it might be exclusive because you do have to say, this is the one way. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any words of advice for how to uh, engage, um, how to, help young people understand that evangelism is still important. The gospel yeah. is still important yeah. and that we actually are still tolerant of other people while saying, no, there is only one way. And do you have any, I mean, it's 1145. We've got, you know, yes. we, we can spend a whole <laughs> webinar on this, but do you have any words about that? Yeah. 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 I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, what the studies show that at least 50% of millennials and probably higher percentages of Gen Z Christians, believers, feel that evangelism is wrong, that to share your faith with someone and expect them to change their beliefs is wrong. And that is, you're absolutely right, Tori, it links back to this idea that that is saying that that's not accepting their point of view as equal and valid, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, Jesus's statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life is going to appear, given the, the definition in our cultural context today, as you know, not inclusive of every perspective and belief. So a a couple of things I would say. One is, again, we see Jesus do two things, share stories and ask questions. He, I mean, yes, you have the Sermon on the Mount, you have him sitting around the, you know, the fire with the fish with his disciples. There are moments of teaching, um, but a lot of his ministry is telling stories and asking questions and creating space for the Holy Spirit to work. So again, I would, um, well, the Holy Spirit had not been sent at that point, but in our context, (laughs) you know, let me not be theologically correct, but in our context, creating those spaces through telling story. And I think even with our young people, it's hard for them to say that someone is a sinner. It's hard for them. And so one of the things I like to say, you know, use as an example in our in thinking about our culture is, you know, people used to say John 3.16 was the most cited verse in America. Today it's Matthew 7.1. Do not judge, right? But the context of that verse is not that I don't judge, but that I take the plank out of my own eye so that I can take the speck out of someone else's eye so that we can all be free. And I think that as we're engaging with young people in their stories and their experiences saying, God wants to set us free from the things that hold us back. You know, these sin is a chain that binds us and God's desire is freedom, which is a shift from how we've kind of said, you're in sin, you're going to hell, you know, in the past, our apologetic has to change. I think more, not what we're saving, being saved from, but what we're being saved to. Mm -hmm. 
And if we can explain that through our story, our experience, and I would say the most powerful thing as we're engaging young people and helping them then engage in ministry of evangelism is our, it being alive and active in our lives. You know, I often say young people will say, I go to church and I see more grumpy faces than I see anywhere else all week. So as we're, li- we just need to, I call it live out loud. We have the joy of the Lord. We don't always express it. So we need to be expressing you know, that freedom ourselves, we need to be expressing it through our story. Um, and then asking the questions, you know, as they're struggling with something, you know, just asking the questions rather than telling them, because they're going to learn much more if they're participating. Someone once said, the person who is talking is the person who's thinking and the person who is thinking is the one who is being transformed. And so if we can ask the questions and get them thinking, um, that there's an opportunity then for them to have a realization. So um, it's it's not easy though. We can't just keep, tell them the four spiritual laws of the Romans road or whatever we've used in the past, the truth project. It really does have to come out of that experience. And a lot of it is us sharing stories and experiences with them and then and living out loud in a way that they can see and then helping them do the same as they're ministering because that's gonna feel natural to them. They're not telling someone that they're wrong. They're simply sharing their story and experience which can be attractional, you know? And I think that's powerful to them. Good, and I think that um, has some implications on, you know, this is my general observation. I kind of wonder if people, more people involved in short-term missions are more motivated by the gospel and people believing in Jesus or motivated by the fact that it seems unfair that somebody doesn't have clean water or food. And we're kind of drawn to trying to provide that. Um, So this was a question and I think we kind of hit it earlier, but it's, I want to make sure we get this question answered. Uh, Tim asked, you know, let's just make three categories. These are pretty good categories. Uh, One would be a trip that goes, goes and does, they work, they do stuff. Mm Um, a trip that's maybe almost like ex- completely idea of ex- promoted experiential go and learn. Then you've got one that's like go and do, and you're actively engaging probably with your partner. Mm-hmm. Um, what, so those things in mind, um, what, uh, what kind of trip would be not most attractive? Cause we just want to placate, but what's going to draw them in? What's, what do you see as um, the way to go in this? How do we, how do we balance that idea of meeting people's needs? Benzie, they're probably going to be really drawn to meeting people's physical needs, but how do we then maybe flip it over to understanding and, and involving the gospel in it? I don't know if that question makes yep. sense or if I asked you five yep. questions in one there. So, yeah, I'm not, yeah. I'm not sure I'll answer it completely. So feel free to ask a follow-up question. Mm -hmm. Um, I think one thing that's, some of that's going to be dependent on the student, you know, what their passion is. Again, that individualization is very important to them. So what they're personally passionate about, where they're at in their faith journey, et cetera. I think one thing that's really key is to be able to explain the why behind your trip. Um, They really want to know the why. So even, I mean, young people today, they've been, raised in this postmodern context where we're deconstructing everything, you know, where we have all kinds of critical theories floating around where we're literally deconstructing everything to understand what did not work, what did work. Um, And they're being taught that what is responsible is to do, you know, something that's going to help and not hurt, you know, helping and not hurting. (laughs) And so they're very in tune to that. So even sometimes, you know, we, 
millennials are very much, you know, social justice, social justice, Gen Z is that too, but Gen Z is much, I would say more aware even of the times when sometimes social justice hasn't gone the way as planned, you know, that there have been unintended consequences, even to humanitarian aid and relief, you know, efforts. And so they're going to want to know why are we doing it? In most cases, why are we doing this? Why is this important? Why is it worth my time and energy? So I think regardless of the type of trip, it's really important to be able to explain um, that piece to them. And I think then you're gonna attract the young people who can identify with that purpose or that why, if that makes sense. So, um, I mean, Gen Z is gonna probably be least attracted to, a, yes, a door-to-door -door witnessing evangelism kind of trip and probably more attracted to, um, you know, uh, some sort of active social justice type trip. Um, but I do think a lot of it just comes down to being able to identify them as an individual and how you feel like they connect with the why of your trip. Um, I think that becomes really powerful. Good. So I think you gave a great answer there. And uh, Tim, you know, uh, I think your third category of go and do in terms of actively engage in ministry is probably going to be your best road there, especially if you can set, let them know why you want them involved and how they, how they contribute to this team and to the big picture of ministry. So good. Um, okay. Uh, it, guys, if you have other questions, throw them in the chat box. We'll ask them. I know um, we haven't officially stopped and left time, but but that's okay. You can put them in there. Let me. Hopefully, we can get a couple minutes in on this. Um, uh, and are we doing a disservice by studying them so intensely and catering to them rather than? expecting them to meet us in the middle, or maybe I'm overstating that. Uh, our, uh, so you have some yeah. words to, to that. Yes. Um, so I, I think two, I guess I have two thoughts on that. One is um, we have to approach this somewhat as a cross-cultural experience. Truly what we're seeing right now is younger generations, especially Gen Z, identifies with other Gen Zers from other cultures because of technology and its transmission of culture better than they connect with older adults in their own culture. This phenomenon is happening around the world. I mean, clearly there are exceptions given different demographics and whatnot, but we're seeing this trend for the first time. And that, so there is this cross, there's this cultural gap between us and them. Um, because of technology, because of this cultural shift that's occurring, because of these emerging worldviews, secularism, pluralism, relativism, that they're having to navigate in ways we did not, you know, Gen X, boomers, older millennials did not have to, to navigate. So as a result of that, it's like any cross-cultural work that we do. We want to understand their perspectives, their values, how they communicate, what's going to be offensive to them as we're looking to build partnerships. So in some ways, we have to adopt that mindset as we're engaging them culturally. Now, I do think there's a lot of just catering <laughs> sometimes that happens. I think here's where we need discernment. Sometimes what I've observed is, you know, wonderful leaders, mentors who are sitting out in a boat in the middle of the lake shouting to young people who have never gotten into a boat, never rode, never put on a life jacket. They've always walked on land. You know, that's what they know. It feels very unstable to step into a boat. And we're sitting on the sh in the middle of the lake shouting to them, 
you need to grow up and get out here. <laughs> you know? um, I'm not going to sit and cater to your fear of the water. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, I don't understand why you think it's unstable to be like sitting in a boat, learn to swim, you know, so right. we can sit and shout at them. What we have to do is we have to go to the shore, get into the boat with them, say, this is scary. This is unknown. Now here's how you row, put on your life jacket. Here's how to swim, row with them out to the middle of the lake. Now, the next time we can expect them to do some of that on their own, the next time we can expect that. So the problem is, is if we always go to the shore, we always put their life jacket on, we always row for them. And that we're doing a lot of that in our culture today, you know, and I talk about that when I'm talking to educators, because we are crippling a generation because we're not asking them to do things that are helping them to grow and be resilient. But we have to start with being, so we tend to have two extremes, either the group that is empathetic, you know, and they're just going to do everything for the students all the time. This is your helicopter parenting phenomena, right? Or you have the leaders who are like, I'm sitting in the middle of the lake. We call these the commander, commando parents, you know, shouting at you. I learned how to row. You can learn how to row. Yeah. <laughs> you know, right? So I think we have to find the balance and say, I'm going to teach you, um, but I expect you to do it on your own at some point. Good. That's, you know, the cross-cultural context is a great way for us to think about it. And I love the word picture too of the, of the boat and the lake. I, um, we're, we're in the middle of that as we're trying to teach our almost 17 year old how to apply for jobs. And it's, <laughs> yes. ah, it's just so, so, so changed. How much do you row for them? How much do you force them to get wet? <laughs> right, yes. exactly. And if I want them to actually get a job, yes. if I force them to get wet. He's probably not going to, it's probably not going to happen. No, no. Good. Um, Man, Jolene, this has been great. Uh, I, I want to let you guys know that we are going to have a great conversation. We'll make that available to you guys, kind of like in a podcast type um, uh, medium. We're going to be talking about how do we screen, um, how do we handle um, some of the, the drawbacks of this life that they've lived, how it's going to make it harder for them to engage in missions, particularly in short-term mission, but also what they add to it. We're, we're going to talk around some things there, but hopefully you guys have found this really helpful. Um, I've loved it. Uh, thank fun. you Jolene, for joining Absolutely. us. And um, if you want to uh, connect with Jolene for more, Jolene, you do like consulting, speaking, online stuff, right? People can go to leadingtomorrow.org and yeah. just find out how to connect with you and how you might be able to help them in their Absolutely. specific ministry context. Yeah. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Better Mission Trips podcast from Standards of Excellence in Short-Term Mission, or SOE for short. For more information or resources about how to make your mission trips better, or even to become a member of SOE, visit us at our website, soe.org. And a special thank you to Melissa White for producing this episode.